Welcome to AJHP Voices, a series of discussions with AJHP authors and interviews focused on contemporary practice issues. AJHP is the official journal of ASHP, and its mission is to advance science, pharmacy practice, and health outcomes. Hi, this is Daniel Koba, the Editor-in-Chief of AJHP. Thanks for joining us for this episode of AJHP Voices. The peer review process is a critical component of scholarly publishing. Journal editors rely on quality peer reviews as they make decisions about pursuing and releasing submitted manuscripts. Yet, many biomedical journals struggle to recruit peer reviewers. Joining me today is a team from the University of Oklahoma College of Pharmacy and OU Health to discuss their recent AJHP article on integrating learners into the peer review process. With me are Dr. Pete Johnson, Professor and President's Associate Presidential Professor, Dr. Avery Parman, a PGY2 pediatric pharmacy resident, and Dr. Jamie Miller, professor. Pete, Jamie, Avery, welcome. It's nice to talk with you this afternoon. Thank you for having us. In your article, you provide data from Clarivate that actually indicates that the peer review acceptance rates have decreased when you look at 2020 to 2022. The acceptance rates when invitations go out to peer reviewers have decreased from 37.5% to 32.3%. Pete, why do you suspect that peer review acceptance rates are declining? It's a good question. I think that possibly a, a few different factors. I think one, and we noted some anecdotal statistics that you uh, had provided from the journal that AJHP, among other journals after COVID, have seen an increase in submissions. So I think that may be one, is the, the increase in submissions just that we've seen over the last few years. I think another thing that I've seen is that some peer reviewers, they, and maybe this doesn't exactly show up in the decline, but they change positions. And so they are essentially lost to follow-up or they've declined because of those change in positions. They're no longer practicing in the area that maybe the journal system intended or it was proposed that they were practicing it, I guess. So that's a couple of things I think that we have sort of seen or noted. Is it surprising to you that less than 40% of individuals who are invited to review a manuscript for a journal actually accept? I think at face value, that seems like a very shocking statistic. But in thinking about it, it's not really that surprising, unfortunately. And I think that's why we may see from an author perspective, a delay in when we get peer review comments back. So I think it is surprising maybe at face value, but in thinking about it, you know, it, it really is something that many journals I know, including AJHP are facing. One other thing that comes to mind as well that I think is interrelated is I think that sometimes peer reviewers may see a deadline that a system imposes, and they may think that if they can't meet that specific deadline, they may not know that they can contact an editor and sort of possibly negotiate a due date. And so I think that that might be another factor as well, that there may be reviewers out there and there just may be a lack of awareness on their part that that could be something that definitely should be and could be done with the peer reviewer and the editor. Jamie, what would you add? I think one other thing to consider is that decline rate may not be actual declines of the invitation, rather that the invitation actually timed out. So within the system, if it was sent and there was no response, it would basically signify that they declined the invitation to do that. And some of those 
lack of response may actually be that some of these emails are being sent to a junk email box. And so people may not be aware that they're being sent there. Or as Pete mentioned earlier, they may change institutions, but they didn't update their contact information within the system. And so it's being sent to an old email. So therefore, no response is received. Got it. Avery, as a resident, why do you think it's important that we engage learners in the peer review process? It's a good question. I think we touched on this briefly in the article, but peer review is a professional responsibility for us as pharmacists and those in the medical field. I can only speak to my school of pharmacy, but rightfully so, pharmacy curriculums typically focus on teaching students about biostatistics and what makes a good quality study and, you know, what are its clinical applications. And that typically that critique comes after the articles have been peer reviewed. So I think as a PGY1 resident, when I started working with Dr. Miller and Dr. Johnson, going through the process of peer review is not something that I had had exposure to. And I think we can't expect students and residents to become full-time practicing pharmacists and to become professionals without having had any practice or exposure to this during their training or during their education. So I think I can only speak from my personal experience, but this has been extremely beneficial to walk me through how to be effective on peer review, how to give constructive critiques in a way that is helpful to the writers pursuing publication. So I think it's important to involve residents in order to give them exposure so they can, once they start their careers, fully become effective at essentially providing peer reviews. Avery, anything that surprised you about the process when you went through it the first time? Oh my goodness. It's very time consuming, which was kind of shocking. We talk about that in the article, but I think at face value, you think, oh, I'm going to be able to read an article once and I'll have all of my commentary and I'll have all of my thoughts together. But in reality, we talk about this. It takes three or four times, especially resonance even many times longer to actually thoroughly go through an article and understand what is the subject matter, like what goes into this study. And then you have to read it again to think, okay, what are my questions? And then a third time to kind of finally come up with like a formal list of feedback that you want to give the authors. So I think that was really shocking that it's not like a you're once through this article and you have all of your thoughts together. It's very much so more time consuming and involved than that. So, Jamie, in the article, you describe nine steps in a framework to train learners in peer review. You start off discussing notification of the journal of your desire to include the learner in the review. And you also address confidentiality. These are two important ethical considerations that are certainly, I can, as an editor, speak to this, that very important ethical considerations for the journal. Can you talk about these a bit more? I think that's why we included them really is to highlight that as the first step is that you really need to be transparent in your intentions and the desire to include a learner. You know, we... We all come out as novice reviewers, so you need some training, I think, to be a good reviewer. And so we have to try to identify an avenue to provide that experience. And so I think that most editors are open to the idea and are willing to do that. But I just think we as reviewers should be transparent in that process and get basically approval that we can proceed that way. So I feel like, yes, it could be ethical in regards to if we're saying this is a confidential matter and that we don't want to share you know, these manuscripts prior to publication, but also I think we have to be open enough to allow this to be an avenue for teaching. And it's, I kind of equate it to kind of clinical practice in that, you know, definitely with HIPAA concerns, there's definitely confidential things that should take place with patients, but we allow trainees in that environment. And so I think in this research environment and publication environment, I think we should also take that into consideration. Have you ever had a journal turn you down, Jamie, when you made that request? No, I have not. That's good. Pete, what about you? 
I haven't had a journal turn me down. And I'd also like to maybe echo that, you know, this type of communication could just be a simple email, either before or after the invitation with the editor. And that it may be helpful on your comments specifically to the editor when you're ready to submit your comments to remind them again that you involved a trainee, that that's probably the best way to kind of a before and after approach would be helpful. You know, Pete, you talk in the article about direct instruction and modeling as key elements to the process. How can preceptors most effectively provide direct instruction and modeling? I think that direct instruction could be a couple of different perspectives. One is that certainly there are resources and articles out there that outline the peer review process. But as Avery mentioned, that's not something that's really taught in a lot of curriculum. So a preceptor may have to walk through the peer review process, how an article gets to us as a peer reviewer so that they can understand how our feedback intertwines. So I think that's one element is kind of direct instruction. And again, there are articles out there, but if you're asking them to read an article in a timely fashion, giving them other resources, that may not be the most timely thing. So you may have to just hit the editorial notes and be succinct with the learner. The other thing with direct instruction may be disease state-wise. So for example, I practice in peds critical care and there may be things that even my PGY2 resident may not have seen in terms of patient care disease state-wise. So you may have to give a little bit more direct instruction so that they understand the context of where the study was. So those are just the two different perspectives on that. In terms of modeling, we know that in the article, but a lot of trainees, they don't even know what the end product should look like. So one thing that I found helpful, and we've done it with Avery, is sharing with them our kind of de-identified comments that we provided on a previous article. So obviously taking out the title so that they can't see that, again, keeping with the confidentiality theme, but showing them, okay, here's what your section should look like is an approach to modeling that we found to be helpful. And Jamie, what about the other dimensions of the overall education experience? What about coaching and facilitation? Do they come into play? I think one of the examples that we give with coaching is once you've kind of already done the direct facilitation and the modeling process is having something like uh, we provided a kind of a checklist or a guidance document to help walk a learner through what should I be thinking about in each of these sections. And so kind of view that as coaching as you're giving them the tools to do that, to conduct that review on their own, and then circling back and having that discussion about how their review matched yours. Facilitation, is there any opportunity for that? I would see facilitation probably more in a, with a resident learner versus a student learner, just to have the time to kind of build that in. But basically how I see with facilitation is they have done several reviews at this point. They are doing the review on their own and you're really just kind of checking them and discussing how your comments compare to theirs. But really they're doing the bulk of the work on their own and they're really on that launching pad to be kind of a full-fledged reviewer. Avery, before, when I asked you about things that surprised you, you went to the amount of time and you actually speak to that in the article as well. You discuss the typical amount of time that experienced reviewers typically commit to their reviews. And you talk about the fact that learners may need even more time to complete a quality review. What are the averages for experienced reviewers? What did you find out there? Oh, goodness. For experienced reviewers, I would say they're much less. 
Dr. Johnson and Dr. Miller can probably offer specific statistics, but I can say anecdotally, the time that it takes Dr. Johnson to review an article is much shorter than it takes me. And I think being transparent with that in terms of learners and residents is really important. We have a lot of time commitments. As everyone knows, we have a lot of longitudinal projects. And so I think for me, averaging, I mean, it could take me anywhere from two and a half to three hours to read through an article three times and provide feedback that is good quality and would be beneficial to the writers. So that is obviously not something that you can drop on a resident the day of. So I think that's another reason for preceptors or residency program directors to be kind of transparent about the amount of time that it's going to take the resident to assist with this just so they can plan accordingly. But yeah, I would say residents, it can take quite a few hours longer than probably, air quotes, the grown-up peer reviewer. So Pete is that grown-up peer reviewer and as an associate editor for AJHP, What's your experience? How long does it take you on average to do a review or what's your sense from our colleagues, how long it takes them? Yeah, I think we found a statistic that we mentioned in the article that mentions about four to six hours on average to complete a peer review just from, you know, reading it several times to drafting your comments from start to finish. And so I'd say for me, it usually falls in that ballpark. I definitely agree with Avery's point that for residents and then from students, we should expect that it's going to take them more time, especially if they've never done or gone through the process before. And so I think Avery makes a great point that we we can't just really as preceptors just drop this on a whim because it's going to take them longer than it would take us. And so, you know, what we kind of highlight in the article is just having a little bit more intentionality. If this is something that especially you're going to do for students or residents, you know, for students, maybe that's during a research rotation or an academic rotation, they may have more flexibility to get that done. Even one or I have some colleagues that have them do two peer reviews during the course of a four to six week rotation. So being intentional with residents, maybe that might be more appropriate as a longitudinal experience, but I think it can be done. It's just as preceptors, as RPDs, just being more intentional about how we approach that. Jamie, Avery has alluded to this a couple of times already in our conversation, but in a 2017 HHP article, Dee Domenico discussed the the number of times a reviewer should read a manuscript and what should be involved in each read. And you go into that further in your article. Can you talk about that process that Avery's actually already started to introduce into this discussion? Yeah, I follow that same approach as I think it takes at least three read-throughs of the article to really put together a good review. So in the first read-through, it's really just kind of a superficial kind of quick read-through of does this make sense to me, kind of just getting the layout, the overall context of the article. And then it's really in my second read-through that I'm making notes and, you know, of questions that I might have, or maybe I'm seeing something in the results section that I never saw in the method section. So I'm trying to make alignment between the sections and making sure that the flow and the article makes sense to me. And so in that second read-through, that's where I get a lot of my comments written down. And then I do a third read-through just to make sure, again, I'm seeing the big picture again and making sure that I have identified all of the concepts that I I think need to be addressed. And so definitely a fan of that way of doing it. And so we we pass that on to our learners as well, is that they really should kind of be taking it in steps when doing their review. And as a follow-up to that, Pete, the process then for developing the comments that will ultimately be submitted to the journal, how do you approach that with a learner? 
Definitely. As I mentioned, we try to share, at least from a previous example, a de-identified, a model, how to do it. And then we emphasize trying to drop those comments independently. Over the years, I think when I was first involving trainees, I would type up comments while they were there. And I found that that does not give them time to think, that they may not see things the way that we do. And so really trying to do those independently is helpful. So as Jamie mentioned, the supplemental of table two, we created a worksheet. Now I know worksheet and tools and that freaks a lot of people out being more scripted, but we put that together mainly for, in our experience, students and especially maybe PGY1s that haven't gone through that process. Because what I found is that even if I give them a document that I've done for a previous peer review, it may not match the type of article that I've been assigned to peer review. So for example, if the comments I provide them are for a review article, that's not really going to work or provide them good examples of what to think of if it's an original research study. And so that's why we created the worksheet. It's not just to add more work. It's just to give trainees and preceptors some things to think about during their discussions and to really help guide that training. As a follow-up to that, Pete, we know that there is guidance out there if it's Prisma for systematic reviews, or if you are looking at an observational study or an RCT or even a case report, there's guidance out there for criteria that should be used to review those types of manuscripts. Do you introduce that guidance to your learners as part of the process? Definitely, it would be, for example, a systematic review. That would be something that I would probably try to introduce before they actually conduct the peer review so that they can review that checklist, Prisma, for example, as they're conducting the peer review. I think I've maybe done it the opposite way where I've discussed that after the fact, and I feel like that did not go as smoothly in terms of them, the resident or the trainee, thinking through themselves and then comparing notes, kind of more of a, a coaching type preceptor role. I think this would also be the point where the preceptor would look to the author guidelines and whatever directions that the journal provides on what should be used. That's something that as they're reviewing, they should have those discussions with the resident as well. So Prisma is an example, but it could also be instructions for case reports or case series that there also are checklists and other things to consider like the Naranjo scoring tool. So making sure that reviewing those author guidelines as doing the peer review process. Avery, one issue that I'm curious about is, you know, preparedness as a learner to actually conduct a peer review. I'm thinking about, you know, your research knowledge and skills, even your experience with practice and with therapeutics. In, you know, the early stage of your career, do you feel comfortable that you have the insights that are required to conduct a quality peer review? It's an interesting situation because like I talked about earlier, this is not something that obviously pharmacy schools prepare you for. So I would say if you would have asked me prior to my first peer review as a PGY1, did I feel like I know what I was doing and did I feel qualified? I would have told you no. But now having done three or four and being a PGY2, I think it's incredibly important to involve residents. You know, PGY1 residents, we expect them to write a manuscript. 
So it doesn't make sense to expect a resident to be able to write a manuscript, but then say that they're not adequately prepared to, I guess, critique a manuscript, if that makes sense. So I think just anecdotally throughout my experiences with Dr. Johnson and Dr. Miller, sometimes these articles that cover like these very hard to grasp clinical concepts, I feel that not having experience in that is often beneficial because things that may automatically make sense to Dr. Johnson or Dr. Miller in terms of the background don't make sense to me as a learner. And so we're able to kind of raise questions about how could we address this or explain this better in the background or how could the discussion kind of flesh out the real problem of what we're studying better. So I think that involving layered learning like we do in medicine is extremely beneficial. I mean, you kind of get all perspectives. And I think that is the only way that truly we can make articles the best they can be by having all different insights and all different levels of experience provide feedback. Those are interesting perspectives. Jamie, what would you add to that? I would agree with Avery in that I actually find it very beneficial to have either student learner or resident learner because they do come at it from a different perspective. And maybe I take for granted that I assume I know what the author is saying because I know that disease state, I know that patient population, whereas they are not following how the author made the leap from one statement to the next. And really that needs to be built in because not all readers of that article are going to be well-established in those areas. So I do think that is very beneficial just to have that perspective and to kind of connect the dots for the readers. And then also I find it helpful. I'm I'm very much an extroverted thinker. And so I find it very helpful to have the learner there because as I'm trying to teach or talk about the subject, I oftentimes think of other points that I want to make to the authors. And so that's also beneficial to me. As far as where we expect their knowledge base to be either on the content area or on just research in general, you kind of meet them where they are, just like we would on a clinical rotation as well. And so, you know, sometimes that may mean you need to give them an additional article to read just to get up to speed on what is this disease state, what typical medications are used. But I will find that our learners surprise me all the time and they tend to identify things that maybe I skipped or overlooked. So again, yes, maybe they're not fully up to speed with where we expect someone in practice to be, but they can still provide good insight. Pete, anything to add there? I think Avery and Jamie hit some uh, good points. One thing from a maybe an additional perspective or another vantage point is sometimes I've had trainees that have caught major flaws with an article. And when they type up their comments, they're a little bit harsh or they say things that maybe we should soften. So I do think that that's another thing that we're teaching as well is that to be a good peer reviewer, we need to be respectful. And I'm not saying, certainly Avery, not saying that you're not respectful, but may need to help them learn how to craft helpful peer review language because, you know, maybe they haven't been on the receiving end as an author receiving comments back from peer reviews. And I think we all have received peer reviews that have been very blunt and harsh and not always actionable. And so I think that opportunity to help them craft recommendations on what would be appropriate to include for a reviewer, making sure it's you know respectful, that it's actionable, is something else that I see in working with especially PGY2 trainees. And with that, that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Dr. Pete Johnson. Dr. Avery Parman, and Dr. Jamie Miller for joining me to discuss their article, Training the Next Generation of Peer Reviewers, Steps for Guiding Pharmacy Learners Through the Peer Review Process, which was recently published on hhp.org. Please join us here each month for discussions on contemporary pharmacy practice issues and interviews with HHP authors. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your colleagues and via your social media of choice. Thank you for listening to AJHP Voices. For more information about AJHP, the premier source for impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes, please visit AJHP.org.